We'll have the children's time. So I would like to ask the kids, have you ever taken a test? And if you have, yes, I bet you, I bet you have. What was the easiest test? Spelling test. Spelling test. Very good. Not for me. I've never had, I don't think I've ever had a spelling test. Some other kind of test then would be easy, huh? What's the, yeah. what's the yeah. kind of test? Huh? Is one of the tests more difficult than any other? Probably the milestone test. The milestone test is, um, or the SBAC. The SBAC is um, writing, math, and um, reading all in the same day. Wow. So that's a whole battery of tests. Like they used to, we used to take what was called the Iowa Tests of Basic Skill Development. And you had to read and you had to write and you had to do arithmetic and it was all in the same day. And you had to color in little circles because they were machine read and you had to use a pencil and make sure you didn't go outside the circle and you had to stay inside the circle and you couldn't open your book until you were told to do so. And it was a big deal. So those are tests. So today we heard about Jesus taking a test, a real temptation. And I also want to talk with you today about a couple women whose commemoration we have on Thursday. In other words, we remember them, we think about them. And you have a picture there. Eric Tillman. The upper, upper left-hand corner of the screen. And that is actually a picture of Sojourner Truth. I will post these in the parish hall at the end of the day today. A picture of Sojourner Truth. And she was an African-American woman who escaped from slavery, took her child with her, her daughter, got to the north and felt a call on her life to be a preacher, which was very unusual because she was a woman and she was African-American. And she didn't read and she didn't write, but she loved to have people read the Bible to her. And so she became famous. She went about preaching the word as it was given to her to understand. And in addition to advocating for freedom for people who were enslaved, for African-American people almost entirely, she also became an advocate for women's rights. And she was going to make a real famous speech. She didn't know it was going to be famous, but at a special event for women's suffrage in Ohio, and they just about didn't let her because they weren't sure they wanted to hear anything from a woman who was black and who was illiterate. But she gave a speech and it was called Ain't I a Woman? And it wasn't written down at the time because she couldn't write it down. And so 13 years later, someone wrote it down. It was such a powerful speech. And so she became a real advocate, not just for people of color and freedom, freedom for oppressed people, but also freedom for women, suffrage, the right to vote. And so in a few years, hopefully, if the Treasury Department gets its stuff together, her picture is going to appear on the $10 bill. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it's about time, huh? <laughs> Instead of the slave owner, Andrew Jackson, but we're not going to be reconstructionist here, but she should have, should appear 
uh, on the $10 bill. And Harriet Tubman, who's down in the lower corner there, she's going to appear on the 20. And Harriet Tubman is also a woman who escaped out of slavery and took her daughter with her and got a life of her own. She she married once she was free. In fact, she married and divorced, and she married again, which was really unusual. And she went back at risk to her own life and got more than 70 of her family and friends to freedom, going back into the South where she could have been jailed or had had a foot cut off or who knows what could have happened to her. I've read lots of books about Harriet Tubman. Have you read books about Harriet Tubman? Wonderful. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. So... These are two women whose commemoration we're going to have on Thursday. And that simply means the church takes note of them as renewers of society, because those women faced all kinds of tests and trials and temptations. And they came through, and they're an example for all of us. So in our hymn, go ahead. Mm -hmm. um, I was in the books. I was kind of confused with Harriet Tubman because how did they figure out that she was in, um, how did they figure out that she was in France? How did they figure out that she was in France? Word got around even in those days without the internet. And uh, <laughs> really, she had a remarkable, remarkable life when you think of the oppression that she came from. So that's, that's a good question to which I don't have a clear answer. But uh, she had a wonderful life. And she brought liberation and freedom to a lot of people. And we're going to actually talk about that a little bit more. How we need to bring liberation and freedom to all kinds of people uh, today. So in our hymnal, we have a special prayer for renewers of society, like Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman. And I would like to ask you to pray along with me as we use this prayer from our hymnal. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, you created us in your image. Grant us grace to contend fearlessly against evil and to make no peace with oppression. Help us, like your servants, Sojourner and Harriet, to work for justice among people and nations. To the glory of your name, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thanks so much. Today's gospel lesson narrates an epic confrontation. This is better than Star Wars, people, and there's nothing computer-generated graphic about it. This is incarnate good confronted with incarnate evil. The light is confronted by darkness, freedom, by crushing oppression. So, though it's difficult to tell from our lesson, Jesus has just been baptized, heard a voice coming from heaven that says, you are my son, the beloved, and Jesus has returned from the Jordan, full of the Holy Spirit. So once again, as we talked about last Sunday, we see that familiar pattern with a high point, a mountaintop experience, followed by a time of acute testing. Jesus has been in the wilderness, led there by the Spirit for 40 days, during which time he has had nothing to eat. And Luke tells us he was famished. That's probably an understatement. And as so often is the case for temptation, it comes to us 
at the most vulnerable point of our defenses or in the area of our greatest need. This was not a fast at your local club or health spa. This occurred in the wilderness. And Luke is reminding us of the children of Israel as they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. But unlike the sometimes wayward children of Israel, Jesus does not waver and the Holy Spirit stays with him, never leaving. One commentator says that Luke has Jesus enduring temptation using the same resources as would his disciples. And that's the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Those are our two weapons against evil and temptation as well. Two of the temptations begin, did you notice? If you are the Son of God. This is an attempt to reproach the voice that Jesus heard speaking to him at his baptism. But when the devil tempts Jesus to turn a stone into a loaf of bread, Jesus counters with a word of scripture, quoting from what is for us Deuteronomy 8. The second temptation occurs remarkably in an instant, in an instant, as the devil somehow shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. Satan offers all of this to Jesus. But Satan is a liar and the father of lies, as we hear in the Gospel of John. And so the devil attempts to use a colossal falsehood in order to deceive, saying that all the glory and authority has been given to him, to the devil, and he can use it and give it to anyone, however he pleases. What a familiar refrain from so many tyrants in the history of this planet. It's mine and I can do with it whatever I want. But Satan is a liar. God made the world. God saw that it was good. God never handed it over to anyone. Creation may be fallen, but it was never given to the devil. He's a liar. And so, since it's the devil, we can all say, liar, liar. Thank you, that's the best response I've ever gotten from you folks. Wonderful, that's right. Hanging on a telephone wire, liar, liar. The father of lies and deception. And people are seduced by those lies. And Jesus answers with another reference to Deuteronomy in what would be the sixth chapter for us. We are to worship only God and serve only God. And so the devil is frustrated again. In the third temptation, we look down from the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. It's probably the southeast corner of that whole enormous temple complex, which overlooked the Kidron Valley to the east. And that was 450 feet below from the top of the temple to the bottom of the Kidron Valley. That was really a drop off. Then we have that stunning passage where the devil himself actually quotes scripture. Apparently, he's got it memorized, as we say back home, for all the good it done him. The devil quotes from Psalm 91, which is real chutzpah. But like so many times when people want to proof text, which is pulling a scripture out to support their own preconceived notions, the devil has the context all wrong. This psalm talks about stumbling when you're walking 
It doesn't talk about jumping off of tall buildings. And one Jewish commentator notes the double irony that Satan quotes from a psalm that is intended to extol God's protection from evil. The devil may have it memorized, but he's got the context all wrong. We sang part of that psalm. The choir is going to sing that psalm again on eagle's wings. There's been a lot of proof texting that's been horrifically damaging for people. Talk today about two women who were former slaves, and slavery was justified by proof texting. St. Paul said, if you are a slave, do not seek to be free. Back in the Law of Moses, it said, make sure your slaves have the Sabbath off just like you do. And so people took those passages. They proof texted, and they said, see, Scripture says it's okay, so I'm just going to go down to the sale barn and buy somebody. We got to watch how scripture is used. And proof testing is rife in our culture for all the wrong reasons and with all the wrong conclusions. We're going to talk more about that as we work our way through this series on how Lutherans interpret the Bible. I really hope you'll make an effort to attend that one place or another. So once again, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy again from what is for us chapter 6, and so the devil is foiled again. But one commentator makes this piercing observation, saying that Jesus' followers, that's you and me, must recognize that the devil can quote scripture, and that correct interpretation rests in their hands. It's a corporate understanding of the entire church. And we'll talk more about that at Bible study. So, having been foiled three times, the devil departs until an opportune time. When does he show up again, clearly and personally? Luke tells us, before the preparation for Passover in Jerusalem, then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. And we'll talk more about that on Palm Sunday and during Holy Week. So Jesus is tempted in every way as we are tempted, tempted by power, acclamation, and the prospect of immortality. Amazingly enough, just like our first parents were tempted in the garden. And an early church writer notes that this story suggests three categories of vice, although I don't know that we need three categories, but they were the love of pleasure, the love of possessions, and the love of glory. But Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, withstands these temptations that come to him even before his first day in public ministry. Many of us are familiar, I think, with uh, John Milton's poem, Paradise Lost. We may not know that the sequel, Paradise Regained, is written about today's gospel, Jesus overcoming temptation in the wilderness without which paradise would have in all likelihood remain forever lost to us mortals. What are the disciples of Jesus today? That's you and me. Those who seek to follow in his steps. That's you and me. What are the disciples of Jesus to make of this epic conflict of which we heard today? Throughout the centuries, of course, lots of writers have offered their perspectives. 
I'm going to draw from a little book by Henry Nouwen called In the Name of Jesus, Reflections on Christian Ministry. There he draws provocative and stimulating conclusions about the meaning and significance of Christian ministry one to another. Now, Nouwen was a Roman Catholic priest and he drew international fame for his teaching and writing. He taught at Harvard and he taught at Yale and he taught in France and he taught in Belgium. But then he stepped away from his glittering academic career to move to a L'Arche community where he lived and worked among people who had significant intellectual and physical and developmental disabilities. Henry Nouwen writes that the, intellect, that the academic success that he had achieved led him to a place where he was beginning to experience a deep inner threat. His success led him to experience a deep inner threat. He writes, everyone was telling me that I was doing really well, but something was telling me that my success was putting my own soul in danger. So Henry Nouwen wrote this small, simply constructed book, as most of his books were, to explore the temptation of Jesus experienced and look at those in light of the temptations we experience as Jesus' disciples. And by the way, I will be quoting rather heavily from his work, and so that I don't have to keep saying quote and unquote, just know this. If there's something kind of simple and ordinary, it's probably something I've written. If it's something incisive and brilliant, it's probably coming from Henry Nouwen. It's true. <laughs> so Jesus' first temptation was to be relevant, Nouwen says, to turn stones into bread. And what a wonderful thing that would have been to feed hungry people. But in a world that is increasingly secular, Christians too may feel less and less relevant and more and more marginal. And now in notes that more and more people are suffering from profound moral and spiritual disabilities without having any idea as to where to look for healing. It's not that there is any virtue in being irrelevant, it's that the opinions of others, how many likes we can collect, how much you get retweeted, can't be the fulcrum on which our self-worth and perceived purpose in life is leveraged. The question is not how many people will take you seriously. How relevant are you? What are you going to accomplish? Or whether your memes go viral? The key question is, are you in love with Jesus? Nouwen says, in a world of loneliness and despair, there's an enormous need for all of humanity to know the heart of God. And that heart forgives, cares, reaches out, and wants to heal. What's not to love? And the antidote to this temptation to be relevant, whatever that means, the antidote is contemplative prayer. Being a person whose identity is deeply rooted in God's love hanging out with Jesus. When we are securely rooted in personal intimacy with the source of all life, it will be possible for us to remain flexible without being relativistic, convinced without being rigid, willing to confront without being offensive, gentle and forgiving without being soft, and true witnesses without being manipulative. 
The second temptation of this story, no one characterizes as the temptation to be spectacular. No one writes that as he lived in a community with those who had profound disabilities, he realized that he had lived most of his own life like a tightrope artist, trying to walk on a high, thin cable from one tower to another, always waiting for the applause when he had not fallen off and broken his leg. Can any of us relate to that? And the second temptation to which Jesus was exposed was precisely the temptation to do something spectacular that would win him great applause. The task in response to that temptation to be spectacular is to be rooted and grounded in community, in all of us together. We cannot bring the good news to the world on our own, just as Jesus sent out the disciples, those 12 disciples, and then the 70 or 72, sent them out two by two. The antidote to this temptation to be spectacular is confession and forgiveness. And we do plenty of that during Lent. We cannot feel genuinely loved and cared for when we have to hide our own selves from the people who surround us. We are called to live the incarnation, that is to live in the body, not just our own bodies, but also in the corporate body of the community, which has been, of course, so desperately lacking these last two years. There, in the corporate body of the community, we can discover the presence of the Holy Spirit. Confession and forgiveness are precisely the disciplines through which the dark power can be taken out of fleshly isolation. And no one mentions, except we're going to mention it now, no one mentions how many, many Christians, including priests and ministers, have discovered the deep meaning of community and incarnation, not in their churches, but in their 12-step groups. Does that tell us something? Finally, there is the temptation to be powerful. The devil said, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world and their splendor. But it was not the devil's to give, was it? No one observes, however, that one of the greatest ironies of history in the history of Christianity is that its Christian leaders constantly gave in to temptations to power. Crusades took place. Inquisitions were organized. Indigenous people were enslaved. Positions of great influence were bought and sold. And bishops' palaces and cathedrals and opulent seminaries were built. And this is, this is a quote from now, and remember he's a Roman Catholic priest. He says, and much moral manipulation of conscience was engaged in because people were in love with power. What is it that makes this temptation to power so incredibly seductive? No one says perhaps it's because power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. The long, painful history of the church is a history of people ever and ever again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led by the Spirit. The challenge then for us as disciples is to have a different vision of maturity, the ability and willingness, brace yourself, to be led where you would sooner not go.
When Peter had been commissioned to feed my sheep, Jesus confronts him immediately with the hard truth that a servant leader is the leader who is being led to unknown, sometimes undesirable, and occasionally painful places. It is not the upward mobility of the world, but a downward mobility that ends at the foot of the cross. The antidote to this temptation to be powerful is, once again, brace yourself, theological reflection. Now one asks, what then is the discipline required of a disciple who's going to live with outstretched hands rather than clenched fists? He proposes the discipline of strenuous theological reflection. Just as prayer keeps us connected with our first love, and just as confession and forgiveness keep ministry communal and mutual, so strenuous theological reflection will allow us to discern critically where we are being led. Does this sound a bit like your interim process? Who are we? Who's our neighbor? What are we called to? And lest we think that theological reflection is only an academic exercise, which it is in part, now one adds that real theological thinking, which is thinking with the mind of Christ, is hard to find in the practice of ministry. And this doesn't mean that we have to wade through some thick theological volume written by some German theologian with sentences that are a paragraph long. I've been there and I've done that. Rather, our task as disciples is to identify and announce the ways that Jesus is leading God's people out of slavery through the desert to a new land of freedom. That's why they call it the good news, isn't it? So theological reflection is reflecting on that painful and joyful both realities of every day reflecting on everyday realities, both the joy and the painful, reflecting on those realities with the mind of Jesus. And this requires a deep spiritual formation involving the whole person, body, mind, and heart. Formation in the mind of Christ, who did not cling to power, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. That's not what gets the most publicity, glitz, and glamour. But it is why we study scripture and why we study the best minds and hearts who have also studied scripture. But Jesus asks us to move from a concern for pseudo-relevance to a life of prayer, from stewing about popularity and likes and memes to communal and mutual ministry, and from leadership built on power to a place where we mutually discern together where God is leading us, our families, and our congregations. So, as disciples of Jesus, who was steadfast in the face of every earthly temptation, we follow in his steps, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. May the same mind be in us that was in Christ Jesus.